you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Kaleo, um, it's always good to be together, um, no matter what part of our journey this is, so we can brought us into this place. It's good to be together. Um, As always, I like to start off by saying my name is Erin and my pronouns are she, her. Um, Before we begin, we're going to do a land acknowledgement to honor the Native people that existed here before us. So tonight we honor the first peoples of current day downtown Phoenix, the Thana Otham Nation. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper, they were and are here. We honor you and we thank you for laying foundations of harmony, balance, truth, and honor. Thank you for stewarding the land where creator settled your people. We bless you. We bless your elders past, present, and emerging. Tonight, the voices of Dolores S. Williams, Reverend Dr. Jamie Clark Souls, interrupting silence, and Mario Aguilar have made this sermon come together. And we honor their work and their voices as we make our way through our passage, which is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. It says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with the epiphany of what's your problem, which Chris led us through last week, the Pharisees then got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with great gratitude, we've come together to have fellowship with one another and to also observe the ways of Jesus that we might practice your ways as the multi-ethnic family of God. You know the great weight of all that is happening in the world. The genocide in Palestine, the unrest socially, the things that we've seen before playing out once again in our present day. We lay the weight of all of that at your feet. And we seek to see this situation through the lens of Jesus in this passage tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's recap a bit of what's happened in Matthew 22. We find Jesus catching heat from all sides, so to speak. Just before our passage, the Sadducees, again, they're the party of high priests, 
aristocratic families and merchants, the wealthier elements of the population, they're going after Jesus. And then in verses 34 through 46, which we just read, the Pharisees, those concerned about the people of the land, a more democratic movement, go up against Jesus for the sole purpose of testing and entrapping him. But Jesus pandered to no one, not Sadducees, not Pharisees, not Zealots, who were the nationalistic movement that repudiated any cooperation with Rome who occupied their country, not even Rome itself. Overindulged religious leaders and government officials alike found it impossible to get Jesus to sell out. Jesus remained single-minded throughout his life, love God and neighbor, neighbor and God. Then let the chips fall where they may. They asked Jesus, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? They were presenting an ethical challenge. And how does Jesus then choose to respond? Does he use a media-worthy soundbite, a partisan talking point, or the latest brilliant think tank political and economic theory? Absolutely not. Jesus underwhelms them by merely quoting scriptures that any Jew of speaking age then or now could probably quote. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Jesus' first quote comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, part of the prayer known simply as the Shema. The second is found in Leviticus 19, which says, among other things, you shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. We are in the habit of caricature as a society. If someone disagrees with us, we tend not to listen deeply, respectfully, or humbly. We will do anything in our power to avoid listening and taking each other's points seriously. As Jesus knew, we will crucify faster than we will listen or stand corrected in any way. Until we treat one another as friends, as those who have faces, we will stand polarized and unable, unwilling to compromise and devise solutions, preferring to blame and complain instead. But we have a rare opportunity at this time and this place to build something worthwhile and true, just and rich, that comes from our very best selves, our humble, generous, other-oriented, daringly hopeful selves, that is our godly selves. I wonder what that love looks like. I wonder what your life and my life would be like if we held those two commandments as the guiding principles for all we do. I wonder what we might create and achieve if we embodied and lived those commandments. What kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want for your children, grandchildren, and those who will come after you? What are your best wishes and hopes for the future of the world, our country, this city? 
What do you pray for when you look at everything that is happening today? Here are some of the things I want, wish, and pray for. I want a world that is founded on human dignity and respect for one another. I want a world in which people come first, a world in which principles and policies support people rather than agendas. I want justice for all and not just those who can afford it, who have power or who have the right color of skin. I want a world in which different religions and beliefs are valued and viewed as a means for all to meet the divine. I want a world in which diversity and difference are celebrated rather than oppressed. A world in which people and nations are at peace with themselves and one another. I want a world in which we face and learn from our past. We learn from our mistakes and failures so that we can do and be better. I want a world in which everyone has living wage employment, educational opportunities, access to healthcare, safe and decent housing, enough to eat. I want a world in which the first, maybe even the only judgment we make is that the needs, concerns, sorrows, hopes, dreams, and lives of others matter as much as our own. I want a world where we are free Free to love ourselves, free to love one another, free to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, free to love our neighbor as ourselves. The outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war has caused a lot of people, unfortunately, to forget what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the horrific reality is that this isn't the only war currently happening in our world today. If you didn't know, more than 45 armed conflicts are currently taking place throughout the Middle East and North Africa. More than 35 armed conflicts are happening in Africa. 21 armed conflicts are happening in Asia. Europe has seven armed conflicts and Latin America six armed conflicts split evenly between Mexico and Colombia due to issues with the drug cartel. Now I say this not to minimize the genocide and ethnic cleansing of what is happening in Palestine due to conflict with Israel, but to open our eyes to see the ways that empire is impacting our entire world. And at the root of genocide is a desire for power, empire, and control. Empires are marked by their efforts to control all of life, not only politics and economics, but also society, culture, and religion. The construction of genocidal structures requires the demonization of others, which carries a common understanding that others are not a part of us, and that because they threaten our very existence, they must be eliminated. Historically, genocide has told us that the Jews were unworthy of living because they threatened the purity of the German state. The communists were unworthy of living because they threatened the Western civilized model of the military regimes. The Tutsis were unworthy of living because they were subhuman, prey to be hunted, caught, and killed. The absence of God during any genocide is replenished theologically by examining the fundamental principle of human existence, 
love. If the Rwandan genocide of 1994 and the Jewish Holocaust of 1933 in Europe had something in common, it was the absence of love and the hate expressed through political laws against human beings. It is through this commandment to love that we understand the greatness of the call to practice the ways of Jesus. For behind any genocide and any conflict, there is a failure to love one's neighbor and to love at all. At its core, the public outcry for ceasefire in Palestine is a prophetic call and renewed ethical commitment to love. Jesus teaches us in our passage tonight that no matter how religious groups try to pigeonhole him or force him to be for this side or that side, no matter what they thought should or shouldn't happen or who they thought was responsible or not, Jesus escaped their trap by revealing that at the root of their questioning was a desire for imperialistic power, but the one thing necessary for humanity to continue in the harmony way is love. Love of God and love of neighbor. It is also important to name that if we can only love our neighbor the way we love ourselves, then we must also examine the ways of white supremacy and the way it shows up in colonization, imperialism, empire, and genocide. And we must examine the ways it has taught us to internalize self-hatred. We must examine the ways we have perceived God as a violent, violent deity, which has led some to believe that God approves of genocide and wipes out entire generations of people. Where did we get this bloody theology from? Because we are seeing that Jesus is modeling for us another way. I want to conclude with thoughts spoken from womanist theologian Dolores S. Williams. She writes this as she responds to a question on what happens in communities when those who were once oppressed are liberated, but then oppress others. In summary, she says this. My thoughts on the question of the oppressed becoming oppressors often find solace in a part of the story of the newly liberated slaves of Leviticus 19. I focus on these ancient biblical figures because they have long served as role models for oppressed people, illustrating how God acts in the world. God instructed Moses, the leader of liberation, to convey, tell all the people of Israel, you shall be holy for I am the Lord your God and I am holy. These former slaves surely grasp the meaning behind God's commandment to be holy. They had experienced liberation by God, left their oppressive land, and now had the freedom to establish laws aligned with their chosen community life. Being holy meant establishing a peoplehood, human relationships based on principles of justice, impartiality, righteousness, honesty, wholesome human communications, lacked, lack of vindictiveness, and love. This same sense of holiness is reinforced by another deliverer of oppressed people, Jesus himself. 
Once again, in response to a question from the Pharisees, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. My reflection on liberation does not end with a consideration of whether the oppressed once liberated, will become oppressors. My concern is whether our society is based upon ethical principles that foster justice, impartiality, and honesty. History and the Bible show us that when societies are not based on these principles, liberation struggles to break out which was the case in North America in the 18th century when the colonists oppressed by the taxation imposed by the British dumped tons of tea into the sea, a liberation event now sided with pride. And the civil rights movement in the South in the 60s was also a liberation occasion, disturbing the law and peace and creating voting, educational and employment rights for black Americans. It is after a fierce liberation struggle that the message of Leviticus 19 is cited. The point is that liberation struggle is always generated as a reaction to unjust laws and oppressive practices. Freedom can be realized only in opposition to these laws and practices. Both the Hebrew and Christian Testaments are full of examples of God helping to liberate people from bondage. It is therefore our Jesus-following heritage to disturb the peace and join the current public outcry of ceasefire. If we as Jesus followers abide by the mandates of our heritage, we can never advocate peace just for the sake of peace when injustices are present. Liberating people from oppressive law and order must be our priority for others because it was and has always been God's priority for us. Let's let Jesus have the final word with a moment of silence. For more resources or information about Kaleo, Please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.